Hey everybody, it's Sean King, and I am so, so glad to be back. I have been super sick over the past few weeks. Uh, we worked hard uh, volunteering on a presidential campaign over the holiday, and I think I shook a few thousand hands and took thousands of selfies and uh, got sick as a result, but I have recovered from a sinus infection and ear infection and so many other things and uh, still a little nasally but getting better and I'm glad to be here because today there are two very important stories that I want to break down. Of course, I want to talk about the attack on Iran and want to kind of break that down. And then I have a justice reform issue that's very urgent with an action step that I hope we can all take together. This is Sean King, and you are listening to The, the, the Breakdown. The Breakdown. The Breakdown. Hey, everybody. I am so, so glad to be back. I am in our podcast studio in the North Star offices looking out over Brooklyn. It's super cold today. But I am so glad to be here and uh, want to wish all of you Happy New Year. And uh, I say Happy New Year, but wow, this uh, this year already has been problematic and painful. And in some ways, I saw it coming. <laughs> I'm not a pessimist. I am. I am the optimist optimist. I always believe that we're going to fight back and break through and do well. But I told several people, I mean, this is, I mean, there's nothing special about my prediction, but I mean, I think this year is going to be tough. We are threatening to overthrow the presidency of Donald Trump and Trump and the people who put him in office. They don't play by regular rules that they are. They're not good people. And those interests including the billionaires and corporations that back him privately and silently. They pretend like they don't, but they do. Um, They're going to do everything they can. And that clearly includes the military industrial complex, which is being paid handsomely for, um, for new weapons and new machines. You know, Trump tweeted just a few days ago, that his administration had spent over $2 trillion on new weapons and machines in the military. And, you know, who knows if that's the actual number, if it's more or less. But I'm glad that he said that number. And I think that number can be weaponized against him in this campaign season because there's virtually no idea that's being presented for policy that could not have been paid with $2 trillion. You could literally wipe away all student loan debt from every single borrower in the country with $2 trillion and have $400 billion left over. Student loan debt all over the country is at about $1.6 billion. And... Trump said, hey, we just spent $2 trillion on new equipment for the military. And you have to, again, I have to say this, you have to realize we spend more on our military than the top 10 countries combined. 
And so nobody wants that more than just the corporations, uh, Boeing and others who are all getting rich. And, you know, they sometimes charge these corporations like Halliburton and others charge $1,000 for a chair. I'm not making that up. Uh, uh, we saw where they were charging $800 per cup for certain locations around the world. For a cup. I mean, what they're doing is what I grew up, my mother called highway robbery. I, I don't know what highway robbery is, but <laughs> that's what we called it. It is, and it is robbery. And so all of the people that are benefiting, <clears throat> excuse me, from a Trump administration, uh, they're not going to take this lightly. And so as we organize to fight back, um, they're going to, it's going to be tough. And what Donald Trump did, and a lot of things have happened since this actual attack happened, since Donald Trump ordered the assassination of the Iranian general Soleimani, um, what he did there was illegal. I mean, I need you to hear me say this. It was illegal. It was a war crime. And what we're seeing now from people who were in the room just yesterday, from Republicans who were in the room yesterday, when they got to see the so-called, they call it an intelligence briefing, but when there's nothing intelligent about the briefing, we probably need to think of a better word. They came out of that meeting furious, the Republicans. Uh, Senator Mike Lee from Utah literally said that in his entire time in the Senate, it was the single worst military intelligence briefing he had ever seen. And he said that he came into that meeting not planning on voting for a war powers resolution proposed by moderate Democrat Tim Kaine, basically saying, hey, yes, all forms of war have to be approved by the House and Senate. Mike Lee said he didn't know if he was going to support Tim Kaine's war power resolution, but came out of there saying, no, I do support it. Basically saying without saying that Donald Trump just publicly assassinated an Iranian general off of no real intelligence and that the briefing was outrageous. Not only did Senator Mike Lee, again, a Republican Trump supporter from Utah, not only did he say that, he said that when they were given the briefing, they were told that they should not and could not oppose it. And he was livid, like, hold on, what? You just asked me what? That I can't oppose the briefing. I can't speak out against the briefing. That's what you say in a dictatorship. That's what you say when you expect your party to get in line. And why, why wouldn't Trump say such a thing? Because the Republican Party routinely gets in line. But in this rare situation, um, what we see is that Trump has taken us to the brink of a world war. And if you think just because Trump gave a speech yesterday basically saying he's kind of sort of standing down, if you think that Iran is going to have the man with the single highest approval rating in their country, a, a perpetual war hero, and we can talk about, oh, he's done this and that. I know what he's done. I know what all war generals have done. All war generals have, quote unquote, blood on their hands. I see people saying that about General Soleimani over and over and over again, that he has blood on his hands. Of course he does. That's what a war general has on his hands. What, what else would they have on their hands? 
there's not a single American war general who does not have blood all over their hands. In fact, I don't know if any war generals have more blood on their hands than American war generals. And so um, that our nation believes that they would assassinate him in broad daylight in front of an international airport in another country, which is extremely dangerous and goes against so many, you know, war has some rules to it, unspoken rules, and airports are generally seen as off-limits, but that we assassinated this man with a missile from a drone completely obliterating the car he was in, still basically right on the grounds of the airport, the international airport in Baghdad, it deteriorates what people think is fair game. And after people saw the so-called intelligence briefings, they were furious. Uh, Cory Booker left that intelligence briefing infuriated. And what we see is that Donald Trump just killed a man. And I, I want you to focus on two moments. And I can't let go of this. I'm going to write a piece about this. We're about to launch a brand new website for the North Star and brand new iPhone and Android apps. And I'll announce it to you all first, but I'm going to announce it big publicly really soon. But I love the listeners of the breakdown, so I'm going to let you all know. I'm about to have a daily written news column again, something I did for years when I was at the New York Daily News. And uh, we're about to have a daily news column from me every single day uh, from the North Star. And I can't wait for you all to read it. But I'm going to write about this. I think there are two moments that are deeply connected to Trump just casually ordering the assassination of a general from another country. I think first you have to go back to Trump saying, I could shoot and kill someone on Fifth Avenue and my supporters would stay with me. I can never let that moment go because I I think it was the truest thing Trump ever said. It's true. I think when Trump said it, he knew, he knew what he felt from his audience and his followers that these people are going to be with me no matter what. And I think he proved it. And he's proven it, uh, I mean, 15, you know, the Washington Post has now detailed over 15,000 lies and an absurd number of lies that Trump has told just during his time in office. Trump has proved tens of thousands of times that his supporters will never bail. And when he said, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, which is the home, the street of, of, of where his home is located, Trump Tower, his gold-plated mansion in the sky, when he said I could walk out here and shoot and kill someone and my people would still be with me, uh, I think he knew. And I think the truest test of that was when he was literally on the golf course at Mar-a-Lago and ordered the assassination of the general of another sovereign nation that we are not at war with and obliterated that man. He just did it because he knew his people would be with him, and they are with him. And I I, I think there's that moment, 
And I think the second moment that we have to look at in relation to the brutal criminal assassination of General Soleimani is when the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, when he ordered the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist, who was living and working in the United States, whose family is in the United States right now, when the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, who is personal friends, not just with Donald Trump, but particularly with Jared Kushner, they literally text each other back and forth on WhatsApp and Signal, and, and they are buddies. They, they are, you know, families, you know, sons of rich families who've really not been held accountable for their crimes. When the crown prince ordered and oversaw the brutal assassination of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was a, a moderate critic of the country. Like, Jamal wasn't overthrowing the government here. Like, I read what Jamal was, was writing publicly and privately. I mean, he was critiquing him, but it wasn't that big of a deal. They tortured, murdered, and then cut Jamal into pieces and discarded his body where it's never been found again. And the United States government never held Saudi Arabia or the crown prince responsible. In fact, uh, relationships have continued forward like, you know, business as usual. And I think that was a pivotal moment where when a crown prince can do that to an American journalist and keep on moving and pay little to no price for it, uh, I think it was instructive for Donald Trump on what he could get away with. And it set the standard for, hey, if we can order the assassination of somebody that we're not liking in the moment, um, why not join in? And that's exactly what Trump did. And uh, those are two things, but I think there's, there is a third. And I know it bothers diehard Democrats to hear this, and I just want to frame it audibly with my voice so you can understand where it's coming from. Because when you type it, people think you're being a hater. I'm not being a hater. The Obama administration increased their attacks using drone technology. Drone technology was really kind of invented during the Bush administration, but the technology was still very new, was rarely used. They were still primarily using fighter jets and things like that. When the Obama administration took over, uh, the Obama administration increased drone attacks. Moderate numbers are by a thousand percent, at least. That's that's the moderate account. Some accounts say by 10,000 percent. And I want to be clear and just you can Google Obama drone assassinations, Obama drone attacks and just read for yourself. Kick the tires, look under the hood, read articles from sources that you trust. Don't just take my word for it. Everyday people, men, women, and children who were not so-called terrorists were regularly killed by Obama drone attacks. And it infuriated the entire region. I don't just mean once or twice. I mean over and over and over again, including American citizens abroad who had not been charged with crimes, 
who had not been arrested, who were not evading capture, were regularly just obliterated, blown to bits by missiles from drones from the Obama administration. And over and over again, during the Obama administration, particularly as soon as Trump took office, I saw critics say, OMG, the Trump administration is going to take what Obama exploded with drones, magnified over and over and over again. They're going to take it and double down on it. The Obama administration, basically, they were doing it without permission from Congress for war, regularly attacking people left, right, over and over again, all over the Middle East, and doing it without any real accountability. And again, Trump inherited that. And it is now very difficult to hold Trump accountable for what the Obama administration regularly did. When we can say, well, Sean, Obama never assassinated uh, a general from Iran. Okay, yeah, we could say that. But literally, there were everyday people, and you could call it, Sean, that's collateral damage. No, no, it's not okay. Everyday people who were regularly murdered from drone attacks from our government paid by our tax dollars, just Google it and study it for yourself. It's a horrible, horrible story that we mainly don't talk about because of, of our cultural love for President Obama. Because we love his book list. We love his music and movie list. We love what he represents as the first black president. And I get it. I understand it. We love that he rubbed on a young black boy's hair and said, hey, your hair is like my hair. And that moment means something. And he also exploded drone attacks in his administration by at least a thousand percent. And the infrastructure left behind for drone attacks has now been doubled down on by the Trump administration, which is now using them all over the region. And I think all of that had everything to do with Trump just saying, yeah, go ahead, do it. Because he saw the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, order an assassination. He saw President Obama order drone attacks with little to no responsibility, and he already knew he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and his people would be with him. Listen, I have one more story that I want to break down. I know today's episode's a little longer than normal. Sorry to be long-winded, but I just have a lot to say about that. Normally, I would have broken all that down in a few different episodes, but there are some important, very, very important things going down in New York. I'm probably going to talk about these in several episodes, but I need you to understand it, all right? I'll be right back. Break it down. I'm learning a very painful lesson, and I've experienced this more than once, so it's not brand new to me. But when you fight for change in society... All of the focus is on getting the change, making the change. A good example, we just talked about President Obama. A good example would be we fought so hard to elect President Obama that there was very, very little focus on what would happen after he was elected. And very little was done in part because six of the eight years of his administration, Republicans controlled the Senate. They still control the Senate and probably will for the foreseeable future. That's why we started our campaign to flip the Senate. But so much focus is 
put on in our organizing, so much focus is put on the moment of making the change, of passing the law, of electing the person, that often when we make change, we've thought so little about day one after the change that we put ourselves in a really vulnerable position. And in New York, I did not know this until I moved to to New York. In New York, the state and New York City in particular has one of the worst justice systems. You know, we call it a legal system. One of the, the worst legal systems, justice systems of any state in the country, any city in the country. And it has had some of the worst laws on the book for over 100 years. And last year with Democrats finally taking control of both houses in the legislature, with having a Democratic governor, with having a major Democratic power base in New York City, but also in the state government. Last year, the state of New York passed, and the governor of New York, Governor Cuomo, signed some of the best justice reforms ever in the history of this state. And people Fought, I mean, fought like hell to get them passed. I mean, some of the hardest things to ever get passed, finally passed, including one thing that I want to focus on today, just to be brief, which was uh, cash bail reform. And in New York, I think the story that most people think of when they think of how problematic bail can be is the story of Khalif Browder the teenage boy who was arrested for stealing a backpack that he never stole and ended up spending three and a half years on Rikers Island in jail, even though he had never been convicted, had never gone to court, had never gone to trial, just waiting, waiting and waiting and waiting, not for a day, not for a week, not for a month, but over three years, just waiting simply because his family could not afford his bail. It's criminal. It's horrible. It's racist. It's bigoted. And at its root, it's the criminalization of poverty, which is just another form of criminalizing blackness, criminalizing color. The city, the state, people in power understand that when you criminalize poverty, they know who that means. They know what zip codes will be criminalized. They know which boys will be criminalized. It won't be young white boys. They know it won't be young white girls. They know it will be communities of color, black and brown communities that will be criminalized. And so what you have all over New York, all over New York City, but all over New York State, and it's not just localized to New York, but I focus on New York not just because I live here, but because when you impact New York, you impact the country. Other cities and states follow New York's lead, but the city and the state are so big that when you impact this city and impact this state, you impact the whole system in a major way. And so the state voted and the governor approved to revolutionize cash bail laws, basically meaning that there would no longer be a cash requirement to get out of jail for petty misdemeanors and nonviolent crimes. And that's fine. That's how it should be. I mean, there are people who advocate for no cash bail at all. And in fact, many countries don't have any cash bail. 
It is a very, very American enterprise. Everything in this country is an enterprise, a business. There is a cash bail industry that fights for this because they make money off of it. There's a cash bail lobby, and the state passed it. And as of today, it's literally the new cash bail laws have been have been in order for nine days. And already people are calling to roll back those reforms, saying it makes New York more dangerous. What they mean is when black and brown people are arrested for nonviolent crimes and misdemeanors, they want them to stay in jail, even though they have not been found guilty. And here's the question. In our nation, do we believe that you're innocent until proven guilty or not? Is it a bedrock of our system or not? Because what we've seen, what I've seen with my own eyes in New York, is that Harvey Weinstein could be arrested for horrible sex crimes and literally never actually step foot in jail because he has the, the, the district attorney's office and prosecutor's office let his attorneys know that they were arresting him and his attorneys went ahead and paid his bail up front. So they never even took, he didn't go to jail and then get bailed out. He never even went to jail. He never went to Rikers. He never spent a night there, a week there, a month there, as Khalif Browder did three and a half years there after they just dropped the charges. Three and a, Can you imagine your son spending three and a half years in jail? Then they just drop the charges and say, oh, yeah, we made a mistake. We're dropping it. Khalif got out and took his own life. He was beaten and brutalized over and over and over again while he was there. And when he was released, he could not take it. Those cash bail laws need to stay the way they are. And that takes me to our action step for today. Action, 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 steps, take action, 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 steps. All right, I need you to make some phone calls. In fact, I just need you to make one phone call for me. If you made the phone calls with us when we were fighting to stop the execution of Rodney Reed, our team, our brilliant team, has mastered this tool. And it's a dialer, but it's we're customizing it in a really powerful way. So let me give you the number. And when you call this number, I'm going to talk you through the whole thing. What I mean is when you call this number, it's going to be my voice talking you through the whole process. The number is 518-730-4619. That's 518-730-4619. Again, 518-730-4619. Now, when you call that number, it's going to call the governor of New York, the speaker, the Senate leader, and I know the Senate leader and the speaker personally. They're good people. <clears throat> Excuse my coughing, but when you call, be compassionate and kind, and you're asking them to not roll back the new bail laws. Of course they shouldn't. They've only tried them for nine days. It hasn't even been two weeks. They tried mass incarceration for 200 years. Hell, we could we could say 400 years. And what we're understanding is they're going to give they're going to give us nine days to try the new bail laws. No, no, 
That's not going to work. You're not going to try these laws for nine days after trying mass incarceration for hundreds and hundreds of years. It won't work. Those bail laws are fine. Build the systems and structures around them if you need. But what we're seeing is you're not going to roll back the law. Poor people, anybody who's committed a a misdemeanor or a nonviolent crime does not need to be paying bail to get out of jail. It's a hustle. It's a money grab. It's a power grab that literally benefits the rich and particularly white folk all over New York, but all over the country. So call that number. Let me bring it up one more time. Call that number, and when you call it, I'm going to be right there talking you through the whole thing. It's 518-730-4619. I appreciate you. Please put that number in your cell phone. Take a moment, put it in your phone, write it down, then put it in your phone, and make that call for me, because we need you to do it. Take care, everybody. Break it down. The break, 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 the break